Okay, let's go ahead and get started, and I want to welcome everybody once again to Plum Creek Chapel. I'm excited about today because we're, it's time once again for our question and answer session. We do these about every six weeks or so, and um, I've got a whole list of great, great questions, uh, which I hope to get to all of the ones that, that were sent to me, uh, but, and also all of yours here in the room uh, today. So um, with that, let me pray, and we'll dive right in so we can maximize our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you for the beautiful weather, and thank you most of all for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for this wonderful uh, church, uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and the, the body of Christ represented here, that we have a place to come and gather and share together and, and study your word together and bear one another's burdens, pray together. We pray for the service to follow, that... Lord, you would use it for your glory, that it would really be uplifting, that it would most of all glorify you, but also edify and encourage us. And we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a couple quick uh, announcements, and then we will dive right in with a couple of questions. Don't forget, uh, the books are on the back table if you're interested, or if you're watching on video or live streaming, you can check, it, uh, check out the Not By Works store at notbyworks.org. Uh, many of you got our email blast that went out yesterday. We're really excited about a new app, the Not By Works app. So uh, check that out. You can simply search in your app store on your phone or mobile device for Ministry One. It'll have a little purple icon like that cross. Once you've downloaded that, type in Not By Works Ministries in the search box. Click Find My Church, and it will find the Not By Works app. And from then on, it will open directly to that app. Lots of great resources there. It's your one-stop place on your mobile devices, anyway, for all of our podcasts, videos, devotionals. Uh, it's got a link to our church. Uh, for those of you that are maybe not uh, already here at Plum Creek, if you're watching online, you can find directions to our church. So search for that. Uh, new Not By Works app. We're really, really excited about it. Again, in your App Store, uh, either the Google Play or App Store on the uh, iPhone, search for Ministry One and then type in Not By Works Ministries. Also want to remind you that we're going really strong now in our midweek Bible study on how to read and understand uh, the Bible. And Jeffrey just suggested that we do these Q&As during our midweek service sometimes. So I may do that. So we may coming up on one of these weeks, do a dedicated Wednesday night to your questions and answers about how to study the Bible. All of the videos for those are posted as well as the audio podcasts. All right, with that, let's uh, dive in. We've been talking about the tribulation in our study uh, big picture of the end times, but your questions today are not necessarily limited uh, to the tribulation. And let me start with uh, one of the ones that was sent in. Well, kind of give you time to be thinking. And um, remember, think easy, simple, not complex, basic, rudimentary. You get the idea? Okay, those are the questions that I'm hoping uh, you will ask. So this question was about the 24 elders. And we talked about this several weeks ago when we looked at chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And uh, which is where the 24 elders first come on the scene. If you recall, chapters 4 and 5 give us a picture in heaven of uh, the, the scroll of God's judgment. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the seal? It's, it's kind of a prelude to the wrath of God that begins to be poured out in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. And it's in that context that we read around the throne, 
were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the question is, who are these 24 elders? And again, we talked about it briefly way back then, but I know we're adding new folks all the time, so let me uh, clarify once again. I believe the 24 elders represent the church, not Israel and not angels, and there are several reasons for that, uh, which I'm about to explain. But let me hasten to add that we want to hold this view with a degree of humility and not dogmatism, because honestly, it's a theological interpretation. We're not 100% sure. We won't find out till we get to heaven. So it's not a hill to die on. It's not something that I would really uh, argue vehemently about. But I really believe the evidence suggests that this is a representation of the church. Um, so the reason, one of the reasons that we think it's the church, first of all, they've already been rewarded. They've already faced their judgment, as it were. And this is before the tribulation. And the only group that has received its reward by this time is the church. As we're going to see in a moment with one of the other questions that uh, someone sent in here, we're going to talk about the timing of the different judgments. All of the other ones, the judgment for Israel, the judgment on the tribulation saints, the judgment on the millennial saints, all of that happens later. So really there's only one uh, category that this uh, could be, and it's uh, the church. Now, as far as who specifically, that's pure speculation, but we know that number 24 is significant because in the times of Israel, there were 24 priestly orders that represented Israel, and there were actually thousands of priests in Israel's day uh, under David and Solomon, but they could not all minister at the same time. So they were divided into 24 orders, each of which was represented by one leader. And when these priests met together, even though there were only 24, they represented not only the whole priesthood, but the whole nation. So it would not be unprecedented then for 24 elders, these are not priests, but 24 elders, to have a similar representation of the entire body of Christ in the present uh, church age. Nowhere else in Scripture does elder ever refer to angels. Uh, and in fact, later on in chapter 5, there seems to be a distinction made between angels and and the 24 elders. So we know they can't be uh, angels. Um, and so uh, also we, we know that they're uh, wearing these crowns, again, indication, and the white robes, indication of their rewards that they've already uh, received. There are two different kinds of crowns mentioned in Scripture. One of them is diadem. You may have heard that English cognate for the Greek word diadem, which refers to the crown of a ruler or a sovereign. Uh, it's the crown Christ will wear when he takes the throne. But the other is the, is the crown of a victor. Stephanos is the Greek word. And it's awarded to someone as a reward. It was the same crown that was given to a person in the Greek games after they won a particular athletic uh, contest. It was usually made of leaves. You may picture uh, old uh, you know, re artist renderings of that, uh, of the Greek games. Uh, so the, the word here is that of a victor. The Stephanos, indicating that they've been rewarded for some victory accomplished. And of course, the biblical teaching on the doctrine of rewards for the church is pervasive. Every New Testament writer speaks of rewards. In our book, What Lies Ahead, I have a chapter on rewards. Uh, and I mention in there, I think there's even an appendix, if I remember right, that lists every kind of reward that church-age believers can receive and every rewardable act that's mentioned in Scripture. Uh, 
So it's pretty, pretty clear to me that we're dealing here with the church, having been rescued prior to the great day of the Lord's wrath, uh, going through the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, followed by the marriage of the Lamb, and then watching as things unfold uh, on uh, earth. So any questions, follow-up questions about that? Yeah. So the question is, everyone in the church does not receive rewards, and uh, so this really is just part of the church. Well, again, I see the 24 elders as representative of the church. It would be speculative to try to identify them by name. We, the Bible is completely silent about that. Some people have suggested it could be you know, the 12 apostles and then 12 other key leaders. Um, I think that's stretching it a little bit. I just think whoever they are, they are the representative body of the church. But you're correct. According to 1 Corinthians 3, not every believer receives rewards. And also Luke 19. Uh, Jesus in Luke 19 gives the parable of the minas, which is by extension a picture of the church while he's gone after the ascension. Uh, and one of those servants does nothing with the mina and is not rewarded. And similarly, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul speaks of an individual for whom everything in his life is burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. So he, he, he himself gets into the kingdom, but he doesn't receive any rewards. So you're correct. Not every believer uh, receives rewards. Now, uh, the question has come up about Old Testament saints and when are they rewarded. So let me put up a chart here that uh, talks about all of the future judgments um, and thanks to an excellent question by someone who emailed in, I've added a column here, the purple column, uh, called Timing. And uh, so any future printings of our chart book, well, I'm always using, uh, updating these uh, charts. Just so you know, I have a master PowerPoint file with most, not nearly all, but maybe not even most, but a lot of my go-to charts that I come back to again and again. And anytime I'm preparing a message or a presentation and I need a chart, I go to that PowerPoint and copy and paste it in. And I'm constantly editing and revising these as I think through it and I'm preaching a particular passage of Scripture. So this one was recently edited this week. But the Old Testament does not speak of a time of reward for Old Testament believers the same way that the New Testament speaks of rewards for Christians. Um, we do know that the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment in terms of punitive damages or punishment. It's not a judgment certainly to, not to see who gets into heaven or not. That issue is already settled but because of our faith at the moment we believe in Christ we, are, we pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment, Jesus promised. But it is a time, it's called the judgment seat of Christ because uh, Paul uses a common term in the first century Greco-Roman culture of the bema, which was a judgment seat, a raised platform in the town square where the different uh, judges and civil authorities would stand or sit and, and uh, presiding over a dispute of some kind, people would bring their cases to this magistrate, and that's how it would happen. So Paul uses that phrase under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, someday all of us as believers 
only believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our lives will be evaluated to see what was done by faith and in faith and with a pure motive and we will be rewarded accordingly and those rewards are things that will then be used for service in the kingdom. So it's not just crowns, there are many other positions of service and so forth. But the rest of these judgments, the next four that you see there, all are actual punishment. We see the next one to come up is the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the seven years. And uh, then you see also at that time the sheep and goats judgment, which is when those who survive the seven-year tribulation and all of its devastation are segregated into which ones were believers and enter the kingdom in their physical bodies and which ones were not. The ones that are not are cast into the lake of fire. And then uh, at the end of the millennium, we see two judgments. The final judgment of Satan when he gets cast into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and false prophet. And then, of course, the final judgment of all unbelievers Uh, The great white throne is only for unbelievers, those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they will be found lacking in the righteousness that's required, because no matter how righteous they were in their own flesh, it does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ, perfect righteousness, which is what you have to have to get in. So that's kind of the timing there, and that's the clarification on uh, the... uh, uh, the fact that Old Testament saints do not have a specific time of reward, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned. So let me read this next question. According to your chart, Old Testament saints don't get their glorified bodies until the second coming. Daniel 12.2, which is the passage we cite uh, here. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Daniel 12.2 states, The resurrection of the righteous will be at the second coming which is in the Old Testament. So therefore, it is take, talking about Old Testament believers and saints. Absolutely correct. So you see, when will our bodies be resurrected? So we need to understand that our immaterial aspect, the real us, what we often call our soul, although in the Bible sometimes the word soul just means your whole life. It can refer to your physical being as well. But in our normal way of thinking, we think of the soul and the body. The soul is that everlasting part that will live on forever from the moment of conception, either in hell if you don't ever receive the free gift of salvation, or in heaven if you do. Um, And then the body, of course, is the part that goes to uh, the grave. So according to Scripture, specifically we read about this in 1 Corinthians 15, all bodies must be resurrected. So every human being who ever lived will experience a resurrection, either to receive a body that will then be tormented day and night forever in hell, or to receive a glorified body that is uh, capable of living on in, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So we've got to have a new body. This body is sold under sin. It's under the curse of sin. And it's the reason we have disease and problems and ailments and, and ultimately this body goes the way of all flesh. But it doesn't matter where those bodies are throughout the annals of 6,000 years of human history and it doesn't matter how much they have deteriorated even down to microscopic dust. Those very atoms will be reconstituted and glorified for believers so that this mortal puts on immortality, as Paul said, this in, uh, corruptible puts on incorruption. And the same thing is true for unbelievers. So on this chart, going back to the question, uh, you see that Old Testament believers and tribulation believers both get their glorified bodies 
at the, the second coming. So in other words, any believer who died before the rapture and any believer who dies after the rapture up until the time Christ comes back, they will be resurrected at that time of His return so that they can enter the kingdom in their glorified bodies. Uh, so in the kingdom, at least the first thousand year portion of the kingdom, the, the constituents or the uh, people involved in the kingdom that are not in the lake of fire uh, are uh, in their human bodies will be all believers. That will include Jews who were regathered into the land at the end of the tribulation, the ones that were living and had not been martyred. That will include Gentiles who got saved during the tribulation and again survived the tribulation because as we've been seeing, so many will die during the tribulation. Um, but then there will also be a group in the kingdom in their glorified bodies. That will include the church, the, the bride of Christ. That will include Old Testament and, New, and, and uh, tribulation believers who died you know, and, and are entering in their glorified bodies. And then at the end of the millennium, the, anyone at, when, when right before God destroys Satan, uh, or at least casts him into everlasting torment, and destroys the old heavens and old earth that are sold under sin, and recreates everything in sinless perfection, any believer in their physical bodies who got saved uh, or, or, or whether they were entered the millennium in their physical bodies or uh, were born during the millennium and eventually got saved by believing the gospel, will be translated. Um, that's a theological, um, what we might call, assumption. There's not a verse that says, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, but I've written a paper called Death in the Millennium in which I make painstakingly make the case that uh, obviously in order to enter into timeless eternity, you've got to have the glorified body based on passages like 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So uh, there's got to be some type of translation. So we call it a translation when you get your glorified body without ever dying, right? Like at the rapture, those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the Lord. We're not being resurrected per se, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are being changed translated in a twinkling of an eye. Same thing will be true for those who never experienced death uh, in the millennium. And then, of course, for all unbelievers, it doesn't matter what age you lived on earth, your resurrection will occur uh, at the end of the millennium at the great white throne where you are then cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So any questions about this uh, question here? Or, I mean, this chart or anything we've said so far. Does it make sense? Or are you still kind of blurry a little bit maybe? I hope not. Okay, and then, um, uh, yeah, sure. No, they did have a chance. So the question is, what about those who've never heard the gospel and die? According to Romans 1, they are not with, they, they have no excuse that, that God has revealed Himself to all mankind through nature. And if we respond, if anyone responds to that general revelation, God will send them special revelation so that they hear and believe the gospel. So uh, not having heard the gospel is no excuse. 
God has made Himself known through nature, through providence, through conscience even. And people, uh, the Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they have an obligation to respond to that convicting work. Um, If it were true, and it's not, that having never heard the gospel means you get a free pass to heaven, then the worst thing we could do is evangelize the world. Because the minute we share the gospel, now they're accountable. So the safest way to get people to heaven is to keep it a secret, right? Because if they've never heard, they go to heaven. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. Scripture teaches that everyone has, uh, is aware of God through, special, through general revelation. And if you respond to the revelation that's been given, you will get more revelation. So, good question. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I think the root of Jesse there is a is a metaphor ultimately for Christ. So I don't think it's a literal root. So to try to picture what that's going to look like in the kingdom, this is that for the context. This is that beautiful passage where it talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, uh, young and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. So for the bear and the uh, the bear and the uh, where is it? Lost my place here. The cow, oh, there's the cow and the bear shall graze. Won't, won't that be great? You don't have to worry about bears and mountain lions attacking your your uh, cattle or your goats anymore. You won't need you won't need to use the uh, all the the Great Pyrenees that are running around or warding off the animals. So yeah, that's a good question, Je- uh, Jeffrey. I think it's uh, just a, a figure of speech in general. Uh, ultimately Christ is going to sit on the throne in the temple, in the millennial temple, and all nations for a thousand years will come up to Jerusalem and worship Him at the appointed time each year. So there won't be a banner? I mean, there, I, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, he said, as a banner, verse 10, so that's a figure of speech, a, a simile using like or as. Shall stand, the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner. So I don't know that it's a literal banner. It's referring to Christ being the banner. So in the Old Testament times, they actually, the different tribes of Israel went out under a banner representing who they were. Christ is our banner. So, yeah. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. So let me follow up on that and let me repeat the question. So she said, during the tribulation, the church age saints have their glorified bodies. The Old Testament saints do not. That's true. Now, we don't know what form we take on in heaven when we die. We know Old Testament and New Testament like any believer who dies goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. For example, David, um, we've been talking about uh, David and Bathsheba in our worship hour. Uh, and if you remember, when the child that was conceived through his uh, uh, adulterous union with Bathsheba died, uh, he was, you know, beside himself. And then at some point, he makes the comment, uh, "I, you know, I can't, I, I can go to him, but he cannot come back to me." In other words, he's died; he can't come back. But I will go to him, indicating he knew that he would see him again someday in heaven. 
and there's other indications as well. You know, the Old Testament is mostly about national Israel and emphasizes the national promises of Israel. You don't see a whole lot of individual redemptive theology there. It's Obviously, it's there. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. But in terms of heaven, hell, and all that, you don't see it. But my point as much, but my point is, we don't know exactly what form even believers today take. I mean, a person in the church age who dies goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But what, what do they look like? I mean, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, so yeah, I was going to get to that question. So the question is about Old Testament saints and um, do they rule and reign in the millennium. So remember, all if you look here at Old Testament believer, they're resurrected at Christ's second coming. So what we have to remember is that for Israel, everything is about the second coming of the Messiah, the, the return of the Messiah to take the throne in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. So if you go back to Daniel's 490-year plan. You remember, everything in blue up there is related to Israel. And that 490-year plan was a prophecy that God gave Daniel, and the first 483 years of it have been fulfilled. The church age is not part of that. It was a uh, what we call an uh, intercalation or a gap or sometimes a parenthesis in God's plan, clearly uh, communicated by the prophecy itself because We know the 483rd year ends when the Messiah comes the first time, and then there's some things that happened after that, and the the beginning of the 484th year, that final seven-year period, does not start until after all that. The New Testament clarifies exactly more details what happens in that gap, but the point is Israel has always been waiting for the return of Christ. The first time He came, They crowned him with thorns. The next time he comes, they'll crown him as king of kings. The first time they cried, crucify him, crucify him. The next time they'll cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So absolutely, everything uh, that takes place at the second coming is, is about Israel receiving their blessings. What role they play in the millennium depends on who who they are. The church is specifically promised that we will reign with Christ. Uh, he said, for example, in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, if you endure, you'll reign with me. He told the disciples, you'll reign on 12 thrones with me. Uh, Hebrews talks about co-reigning with Christ, depending on if we're faithful and persevere. So some believers will have different positions of authority that will involve rulership and leadership over the planet. Uh, some, someone might have Eastern Europe. Someone might have Africa. Someone might have Australia, um, and so forth. So... But not all believers are going to reign. depends on their faithfulness. That's one of their rewards. As for Old Testament saints, we don't know specifically of anything they're going to do, be doing in reigning, but they are the apple of God's eye. They are the central focus. That It's all about Israel. Israel is in the spotlight once again in, on planet Earth, the center stage, and Christ is reigning from Israel. So they will be presiding over the priestly services, and they will be presiding over the sacrificial system and those types of things. So it's not, it should not be viewed as some kind of a competition or you know, the church gets this and Israel gets that. It's not that. We all have different roles to play, um, but there are no indications of a specific reward that is spelled out for individual Jews 
it's more national in scope. Does that make sense? So another question I think you asked um, was about exactly what happens to a person at death. And so this is a chart. It's a little bit of an older chart, so it's not as nice. I've used it for probably 30 years, well, 25 years anyway. And so I don't remember if this one's in the chart book because I've kind of gone away from that. In, instead, I've been using this chart, uh, when will our bodies be resurrected. But this one kind of walks us through what happens to anybody the moment they die. So these five categories represent every possible human being, right? So at the bottom, all unbelievers, doesn't matter what time period, you know, in the generation of Adam or Abraham or Moses, it doesn't matter, or today. If you die, both your body, go, your body goes to the grave and the immaterial part of you goes to hell. And as we said in that other chart, you'll be resurrected at the great white throne judgment and cast body and soul into hell for all of eternity. But uh, the four above that represent uh, believers. And so similar to the chart where I talked about when will our bodies be resurrected, an Old Testament believer, a church age believer, a tribulation believer, uh, all at death immediately go into the presence of the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Nobody ever loses consciousness. Uh, you pass from physical death into the presence of Almighty God. Uh, your body at death goes to the grave or wherever it goes. If it was you know, lost at sea or, or burned up in an explosion or whatever it might be, uh, cremated. Um, but the, the, at, at the various points that we've already talked about, every believer will receive his or her glorified body that then is taken on for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So does that help clarify? All right, any uh, other questions or the next question? Okay, I feel led to go to this side. Yes. So the question is about false teachers, and we've talked in the past about how some false teachers are unbelievers and are simply intentionally trying to deceive and lead people astray and doing it for money or other worldly gain. Some false teachers are believers. They've truly believed the gospel, but somewhere along the way they got astray and they're just not practicing good hermeneutics, not really correctly handling the Word of God, and consequently what they're teaching is wrong. And among that group, there are, you know, gradations of the seriousness of their error. It's one thing to teach, you know, that the battle of Gog and Magog happens one place when maybe it happens another. That's a, a, a biblical teaching that's open for discussion. But it's another thing entirely to teach that you have to work for your salvation or you can lose your salvation, those types of things. Uh, so, uh, so your question was, are they saved or are they not? Well, that question has absolutely nothing to do with false teacher or not. It has to do with have they ever believed the gospel. There's only one condition for, for the last, since sin entered the world in the garden, 
for mankind to be saved, faith alone. And, and all that we can say with any certainty in answering the question, is this type of person saved or not, is if they've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, they're saved. If they haven't, they're not. That's the one criteria. There are no qualifications, no caveats, no uh, fine print, uh, no requirements to somehow prove yourself uh, as a believer. Salvation happens at a moment in time, the minute we place our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In that instant, we are reborn, as Jesus told Nicodemus. We pass from death to life. The Holy Spirit takes up residence, uh, so forth and so on. I did a podcast last week called uh, Top Ten Misconceptions About Salvation. And so if you download our new app, you'll have all of our podcasts, and you can just listen to it right there from the app or any podcast provider. It doesn't matter, Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, you name it. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. But I talk about some of these misconceptions. So um, now where I thought you were going with the question was, among those that are unbelievers, are there gradations of punishment in hell? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes. Luke 12 talks about that. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the only condition for uh, uh, avoiding the penalty of hell is faith alone in Christ alone. But among those who refuse to receive that free gift paid for by the blood of Christ, there will be, just as there will be reward, degrees of reward in heaven for believers, there will be degrees of, re, of punishment in hell for unbelievers. So the question is, even if a saved person intentionally leads someone else astray so that they don't hear and believe the gospel, that other person is still saved. Well, again, it depends on whether they've been saved. If, the, if they themselves are saved... See, the Bible addresses these extremes, and, and as human beings, we tend to gravitate toward the extremes, the, the wild exceptions, right? And so we think, you know, what about homosexuals, or what about mass murderers, or what about this, or what about people that are false teachers that are intentionally blinding others to the gospel? And we, I understand that. That's the way our minds work. But the Bible addresses some of these extremes. For example, the Bible tells us, Paul said this in 2 Timothy, that even if we stop believing, even if we give up the faith and say, God, I'm so mad at you for what you've done, forget it. I wish I never believed in you. I don't like you. I don't love you. I don't believe in you. I've stopped believing. Paul says God is faithful and cannot deny Himself, even if we are faithless. So our eternal destiny is not conditioned upon something we do at the moment of faith and then continue to do down the road. Otherwise, we could never know if we're saved. We would have no idea because we can't tell the future. Nobody in here is a fortune teller. Nobody has the mind of God and can look ahead. So we don't know what's going to happen here. We all stand firmly right now, I hope, in this place uh, in our faith and we, we love the Lord and we hope to live for Him the rest of our lives and die in belief. But a lot of believers have said that. And then life throws you a curve. The sin-stricken world uh, causes you know, unfair tragedies and all of a sudden, uh, sadly, people turn their back on God. And the fact is our eternal destiny has absolutely nothing to do with us. It's fully paid for by the blood of Christ. It's a free gift. And if it's a gift, it can never be lost. So I'm not suggesting that every 
charlatan or every false teacher out there who's doing terrible things and yet claims to be a Christian really is. I'm just saying that theologically, we don't know. It's possible that at some point in their journey, maybe early on, in simple childlike faith, they heard the saving message, they believed it, and in that instant, they were born again, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and became a Christian. And then, as we're going to talk about in the worship hour today about how to overcome sin, the rest of your new life in Christ is about walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh. And a believer who chooses to cater to the flesh and quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, not walk in the Spirit, is capable of doing some pretty terrible things and, and looking very much like an unbeliever. So the, the question, anytime we contemplate in our mind's eye the question of, is so-and-so a believer? Or could they possibly believe? Or how could that person be a believer? It's always the same answer. If they've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, they're saved. If they have not, they're not. End of discussion. That's the way that works. So, great question. Any, anything? And next question. We've still got pl plenty of time left. Yes. There are some great ones. So the question is about Bible maps uh, so that when you read these obscure cities, you were back in Isaiah 11 again. Was that your reading this week? No, you just happened to be focusing on Isaiah 11. A lot of good stuff in that chapter. But when you come to passages like that where it mentions these uh, ancient cities, uh, is there a good Bible map? So absolutely, and in our Wednesday night study, as we go through it, I'm going to give out a bibliography of Bible study tools and recommend a few. Uh, obviously, most good Bibles have a list of maps at the back, but as I'm sure you found out, they're pretty basic and don't have a lot of the obscure cities. Uh, so there's some great ones out there that are pictorial maps. Uh, uh, Zondervan has one. Um, uh, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But yeah, there's, there's no shortage of really nice, thick Bible atlases, they're called. And uh, you can then search up, uh, search by name, and every geographic location mentioned in the Bible is in there, and it'll take you to that map and give you the coordinates where you can find it. Yes, did you have a question? Okay, so the question is, um, how does one know whether they're an Israelite once you get to the millennium and therefore get to be a party to the blessings that are associated with Israel? And specifically about proselytes, a proselyte is a Gentile who converts to Judaism. So another great question. Um, and you're right, the Luciferians have been trying to taint the bloodline and kill off you know, uh, Jewish babies and ultimately trying to kill the Messiah for 
since the garden. Um, but the answer is actually pretty simple. So first of all, ever since the, found, the start of the church, which we know was in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, until the rapture, anybody on planet earth who gets saved, Jew or Gentile alike, is part of the church, is part of the body of Christ. They receive the blessings of the church, such as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all, all of those types of uh, blessings. Um, prior to the establishment of the church age, uh, anybody that became a believer was part of Israel. They had to go through Israel. Remember, um, Jesus told the woman at the well, I think it is, salvation is of the Jews, that ultimately it was God's plan for Israel to cross the Jordan, go into the promised land, and evangelize, starting with the nations right around them, and ultimately the whole world, to be a light to the to pagan uh, ancient Near Eastern religions and to testify to the goodness of Yahweh and the faithfulness of Yahweh, the one true God. Of course, we know the, the story. They didn't do that. They, they failed. They capitulated. They intermarried. They adopted the pagan rituals in many cases of the Jews, so ultimate, of the uh, non-Jewish religion. So ultimately, God uh, judged them. They crucified, ultimately, their own Messiah. So, but uh, after the rapture, once again, everything becomes about Israel. So all roads lead through Jerusalem. So in the tribulation and in the millennium, once remember at the beginning of the millennium, uh, over here where you see second coming, the only people in their physical bodies on earth uh, whose eternal destiny is still, you know, you know, actually everybody's eternal destiny at that point has already been secured because either they're dead and in heaven or hell or they're alive, but they believed Christ, and so they get to enter the kingdom. But at the start of the millennium, the point is everyone's a believer. But over time, there will be people born over these thousand years. And like every human being born, according to Ephesians 2.1, they're born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they'll need to be saved. And in the millennium, those who get saved, having been physically born in the kingdom, will become part of the, the, the nation of Israel. And, um, or at least they will have to, let me put it this way, they will have to participate in, you know, coming up to Jerusalem like we read about in the Old Testament uh, once a year to, to worship God through Christ sitting on the throne. So we may not be able to tell today what the bloodlines are, but it doesn't really matter because you're part of the church. And afterwards, God knows. And again, it, it goes through Israel. Great question. Yeah. So that's a great question about Hades and hell, are they the same thing? There are actually several terms used in Scripture to refer to the eternal dwelling place of the damned and several terms used to refer to the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. And I don't make a big deal about, about the differences. Some people do, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that um, because we do know that wherever those places are today, they will ultimately be, when time shall be no more, and the Bible comes full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state and a recreated heaven and earth, that for the saved it will be the new heavens and new earth, not just heaven. So, for example, when we say, you know, if you believe the gospel, you'll spend all of eternity in heaven. It's a little bit of a misnomer because the final dwelling place for all believers is the new heavens and new earth. And similarly, when we say, an unbeliever who dies goes to hell, well, ultimately, they're 
the final resting place is the, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So uh, Hades represents hell. It definitely represents the place of torment. You see that in, in uh, Luke 16, I think, is the rich man and Lazarus. I sometimes get my Gospels mixed up. Uh, yeah, Luke 16. So uh, there's paradise, Abraham's bosom, heaven, you know, that kind of thing. Good question. Yeah. That's right. So what's the question is, what's the difference between our life, day-to-day -day life in the millennium versus the eternal state? And that's another great question. And when we get there, I actually have a whole presentation contrasting the characteristics of the millennium in Scripture with the characteristics of the eternal state. But there are lots of differences, and we have it, one of the final couple of chapters, I think, in the book, What Lies Ahead, makes these distinctions too. But for example, in the eternal state, there's no night. There's no uh, throne because the, the triune Godhead is the throne in the eternal state. Um, obviously no sin, no sorrow, no things like that. In the millennium, you're still part of time, space, and matter. You still have night and day. You have longevity of life returning because Christ is on the throne and Satan is imprisoned for that thousand years. So there's no accidental death. There's, you know, the injustices of life are minimized. So you have, a, it's a better life, but it's still life on earth. You still have plants and animals and trees and things. Uh, in the eternal state, it's going to be totally different. There's no time. So um, we won't have a need to uh, preside over and govern because everybody will be perfect. Um, but we will still have our unique place as the bride of Christ and a position of uh let's say, I don't know if it's authority or just uh, prestige, you know, Israel will be Israel, the church will be church, the Gentile nations will be the Gentile nations for all of eternity. But yeah, we'll get to that. If you want a sneak peek, I don't remember what chapter it's in, but it's in the book. Yeah? You were talking about the uh, four angels in the Euphrates, I think, at one point. Yeah. And this happened upon uh, Isaiah 27, 12. It says, in that day the Lord will start destruction from the flowing stream of the Euphrates Well, the angels that we talked about in recent week was part of the trumpet, and they were to to uh, they were demons. They weren't angels, and they were preparing the way for the battle of Armageddon for these enemy armies to come up. What this uh, is a reference to is the final regathering of Israel into the land. So I think I've got that somewhere. Actually, I think it's. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember which chart it's on, but when I talk about the regathering in the land, you see, uh, for example, the very next verse, verse 13, so shall it be in that day, this is Isaiah 27, for those that are watching online, so shall it be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown, they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord 
in the holy mountain. Now, if you flip back over to Matthew 24, let me find it. <clears throat> this is in the Olivet Discourse, which we talked about for several weeks. Jesus says um, in Matthew 24, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the second coming. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect, that's Israel, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I believe that's the fulfillment of Isaiah 27, 13 and several other passages. All the Old Testament prophets talk about the ultimate regathering in the land, but it's got to be once they've believed the gospel, as Paul talks about in Romans 10. They can't, they can't call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom until they first believe the gospel. All right, well, we are out of time. I knew it would go fast, but great questions. These are, the questions are getting tougher and tougher. I'm not sure what to make of that, but uh, you, make me, you keep me on my toes, and I, some questions I just don't know the answer to. But um, let's uh, take a break. We will come back together here in the auditorium for worship beginning at 10. Those of you live streaming or uh, you know, joining us online, we will begin the live stream again when I get up to speak, usually around 1025 or 1030. Alrighty, awesome. You're dismissed. <laughs>